My name's Nick. Uh, I am one of the elders here, lead pastor, you, you might call me. Um, if you need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand, and we'll get one to you, um, if they can see you. If, you. if you don't have a Bible, keep it. Um, and if you are new here, just so you know, I would love to meet you afterwards. Um, it'd be it'd be a great honor. So thanks for thanks for stopping by Mercy Hill this this weekend. Uh, we've been in Luke, uh, his gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're in chapter one, and uh, we're now in verse seven or fifty-seven, and we're going to read from verse fifty-seven to verse sixty-six. So Luke chapter one. Verses 57 to 66. I'll let you get there. We'll read it, pray, and get going. All right. It says this. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. Then on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Let's pray. God, you're the one who searches our hearts. You divide bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Nothing's hidden from you, Lord. So why should we even try? God, you know how weak we are. You know how riddled with sin we are. You know the ways we're struggling. You know the ways we're anxious. You know the ways we're depressed. You know the ways we're proud. And yet, in Christ, you love us still. It would be a terrifying thing to be this fully known by a holy God. And yet it is the most tremendous thing because you are also a gracious God.
And you want to call us out from our hiding places. You want to call us out from, from the grave, the tombstones that we walk through and around, the darkness that we live in. You want to call us out from our fears, call us out from our anxieties. You want the burial cloths of Lazarus to fall to the ground as we walk out from the tomb. You do this, Lord, by the power of Your Word. You're not present with us in Your physical body, but You're present by the Spirit. And You speak in the Word of God the Scriptures You've given to us. So Jesus, I am asking today that this Word, sharper than a two-edged sword, would cut, would cut us both down in our pride and cut the other way as well, lifting us up in your grace. God, we need you to do this. We invite you here. I ask that you would help me to get out of the way. I pray these moments would be moments filled with glory. Glory of your grace. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Eyes are adjusting. I can kind of see. We'll be, we're going to be all right. I want to see your faces. I like looking. I like knowing. Really, I like knowing who's falling asleep. <laughs> I just log that away. <laughs> and I pray extra hard the next week for you. I'm just kidding. All right. Let's see. Uh, I have personally found myself um, convicted humbled and encouraged by by this passage of scripture this past week um, what i notice in my life and this is nothing new but this text and the story of zechariah that it connects us to again um, just reminded me of one of my probably biggest problems um, i talk to much. You say, yeah, we know. We know. <laughs> I thought it was a bit ironic that I'm, I'm beginning uh, my time talking with you uh, by noting that I talk too much. But the fact of the matter is I, I fear it's true. Whether I'm at home or I'm in church, I, I talk too much. I... Uh, you know, people present, whether it's my wife or others, present certain issues or certain things that they're struggling with. And I am so ready. I, let me let me tell you, I am the sage on this issue, that issue, that issue. Let me give you advice. I will fix it now. I mean, no, no need to consult God in prayer. No need to hear you out and make sure I fully understand. <laughs> I see and I know. And this mouth just starts going. Or when there's critique that comes my way, you know, things that aren't necessarily flattering for me, what happens? Am I, I'll take that to the Lord. Let me hear you out more fully on this. You know, and let me ask God. Thank you for bringing that to, you want to know what often happens? I'm talking. I'm coming to my defense. I'm making my case. I'm trying to show how I'm right. 
before I'm ever ready to listen or pray. Talk too much. But all this talking um, in home or church or wherever I'm at is just symptomatic of 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 a bigger issue, of a deeper issue. And that is that I talk too much with God. Now hear me out on that. I don't mean that I'm so holy, I'm just praying constantly like Paul says we should do. I'm not talking about that kind of talking. I'm talking about the talking over God, coming to Him with my agenda, my will, and talking over, maybe even talking against Him. So I might be praying, but I'm not necessarily praying in the way that that our Lord taught us to pray, right? There's a reason why, if you read carefully, there's a reason why Jesus begins the Lord's prayer. How? How? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Look at that. I can still see that Marty's asleep. Oh, no, he's not asleep. (laughs) He's deep in meditation over there. It's like the spotlight is right there. I can see it. Anyways, our Father, who who, who, our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we start talking about, I need bread, I need something, I need help. But let me tell you something, the opening verses are, are, are essentially an invitation for God to speak, right? I mean, you are Father, you are good, you are in heaven, you are great, your name lifted up, you are King, Your will be done. This is an invitation for Him to come and speak. We are saying, listen, it's not about me here. I may be coming to you in prayer, but what I really want is to hear you speak to me. I want your will done in my life. Here I am, God, quiet before you, listening. This it would seem to me, is the posture of heart that we all need before we're ever ready or in a place where we can ourselves speak. This place of silence before God, this place of, I'm not talking too much here, I want you to talk. You could put it this way, until a man has been silenced before God, we can be sure that he is not yet ready to speak with or for him. Now God has his way of helping us with this, right? Because this is what our, this is our nature. We're gonna we're gonna run our mouths at God. We're gonna we're, we we want to be the king, and so God has His way of helping us with this. And 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 we look at the story of Zechariah, and we see what he does. We're told that that Zechariah was a man righteous and blameless in verse six of Luke one, and and as a priest he would have been a teacher of the things of the law. And yet we find he has much to learn at this point. He himself. Uh, needs to be taught in so many ways by God. And the major issue, if you could sum it up, I think in this way, he talked too much. There's too much Zechariah in Zechariah's mind and heart. His own ideas, his own opinions, questioning God and what God would say to him as we saw in weeks past. 
There's too much Zechariah turned up, amplified in his own heart. And when he comes at God in this way, God just kind of turns down the volume. In fact, he even basically powers him off. Powers him off. Zechariah, hold on. Verse 20 of Luke 1. You will be silent. Shh. Silence was God's way of taking Zechariah off the stage, right? Putting him in the audience where he, you and I, belong. Zechariah, that's enough. Now, I want you to listen to me. I want you to watch. Sit back. Watch what I am going to do. Let's turn down the talking for a moment so you can learn something from me. may have seemed harsh at the time. Some of us reading the gospel probably felt that way. But it was really the most loving thing, most gracious thing that God could do for him. This kind of silence, as I hope will become clear in our time together here this morning, is a gift. It's a gift of God's grace. To people like me, talking too much. As we move into our text, then you're going to see, if you can see, on your um, handout, four headings that I'm going to put my thoughts under. Uh, We'll just move through them, as usual, one by one here. I kind of broke them up um, according to the verses. So the first that you see there is the right time, verses 57 and 58. I'll probably need a little bit more fluids this morning. We have colds going through my house again, but man, we had a good two-week stretch. I'm telling you, it was like paradise in my home. <laughs> okay, verses 57 to 58. We now kind of enter into our text here, and we read in the first part of verse 57 something that that immediately jumped off the page for me. Now the time came. That's it. I started thinking about this time. What time? What time came? Well, when we read the story, we connect back. Here's what we notice, that the time which Gabriel mentioned back when he was announcing the birth of John, is now upon uh, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth here in verse 57. Luke one twenty says this. This is Gabriel. He says, Behold, you will be silent, Zechariah, and unable to speak until, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. That time is coming. It's here. The stuff that Gabriel was saying back then, nine months have passed, and now the time has come. And you got to think, nine months, man, of silence for Zechariah. That must have been in many ways excruciatingly painful, difficult to deal with, and humbling. And now we come, we say, okay, the time has come for the Word of God to be fulfilled. The time has come for the discipline, the discipline of God, the discipline that God had put Zechariah under to end. It's going to be, it's over. All right? And as I was meditating on this, I I felt like there was a sweet truth in here for the children of God. Um, God's discipline, 
hear me, this discipline has boundaries. It has, it has uh, uh, um, a time frame. It's, it's not inordinate. He doesn't bring us through trials just because he enjoys watching us squirm. He's trying to teach us constantly and he measures out his, his discipline according to not wrath, but mercy. Okay? He keeps us in our trials only in so far as they continue to serve his loving ends for us. Did you hear me? The time has come, you see, for Zechariah to start talking again. You see, God didn't want to just keep him there. That's not what he's doing with us. He's moving him forward no matter how far backwards Zechariah feel like he got. We read something like this in Hebrews 12, 11, which is a verse that has meant so much to me through the years. For the moment, for the moment, a period of time, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you hear that? God's discipline has both a, a, a moment in time and an end goal. All right? And when that moment comes upon us, like it came for Zechariah in this, this, this nine months of, of silence, we, it, I mean, it hurts. And I love how Hebrews 12, that's what was so encouraging to me. It doesn't say, you know, all, you get those other texts, they're like, count it all joy. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay. Oh. And it's like, you get here, and he's like, hey, it hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. This is painful. It's not fun to be here. But it's, it's, it's momentary, and it's moving towards something better. It hurts. Like, like, like the plow hurts the earth as it makes room for the seed that at the right time become a bountiful harvest of righteousness. That changes your perspective a little bit. And if you're there right now in trials, you're struggling, you're just going, when is this going to end? What is God? Where is He? Take some encouragement from this. The right time. It will end. And you will see more of the reason for it. I can't guarantee when. It might be upon upon entering eternity. <laughs> but you will see it. Now, um, I don't want to get ahead of myself here because in our narrative, the, the day of John's birth comes and goes, and yet Zechariah is still silent. So where we get into the second heading on your handout, the eighth day, there in verse 59a. One might have expected that Zechariah would regain his voice upon the birth of his son, right? Okay, here comes the son, where's my voice? Well, why am I still silent? For some reason, and I think we'll start to see why, God had him wait eight more Days. Eight more days until the time of the circumcising for the circumcising of, 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 of John, of his son, of this child. According to what was prescribed back with Abraham through Moses for the children of Israel. 
On the eighth day you will circumcise your male children. This is what we read in in verse 59 of Luke 1. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. This day would be the occasion of Zechariah's newfound voice. Not the day of his son's birth, but the day of his son's circumcision. Now, that detail might initially be lost on us. We don't necessarily know what all circumcision had to do in the Old Testament, what it meant through redemptive history carrying on into the New Testament. So I actually want to spend a significant amount of time, (laughs) believe it or not, looking at this. Because I think there, I think there, that this little detail is packed with significance for us. To get what is going on in, in, in these events that Luke is recording for us with John coming and Jesus right on his heels. Stuff about circumcision is starting to reach its end point, its fulfillment. And that's what we will see here. So, my hope is that when we are done kind of surveying um, this for a moment, you will see why God had Zechariah wait in silence for eight more days. Um, so, let me ask, what is then circumcision? What is circumcision? Um, to answer this, we're going to kind of go four levels deep, okay? i got four levels for you. Uh, we'll kind of take them one at a time, each one getting a little deeper uh, in meaning as we go. First one is this. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant, okay, in the Old Testament. It was the sign, in particular, of the Abrahamic covenant. Covenants, it seems, were often accompanied by physical signs that served to remind the parties involved of the agreement made between them. Okay, so these physical signs reminding them of this 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 covenant that they have made. Kind of like when you go to wedding ceremony, we still kind of do this sort of thing today with the the ring going on your finger that that now is a sign. Uh, reminding us of the covenant we have made with one another. I give her a ring, she gives me a ring. In the Bible, you see things like this all over the place. One perhaps clear example is in the, at the Lord's table, right? Where the bread and the wine are, a, are the sign of this new covenant fellowship that we will enjoy with Jesus. It's the sign, and we're called to continue to do it because it reminds us of the covenant we are in with Him. Make sense? Circumcision, then, excuse me, is in the same way is 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 um, basically how the Israelites would 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 say yes to the covenant God made with Abraham. It's when they would put their themselves or their kids under the knife. It's going to get a little PG thirteen here for a moment. I'm sorry, uh, but when they would put their kids under the knife of circumcision, it would be them saying, okay. The covenant with Abraham, we're in this thing. It's the sign of that covenant and their acceptance of it. Okay? So level one, circumcision as the sign of the covenant. Now, level two, circumcision as the symbol of the covenant. Let me explain the, the distinction. As the symbol of the covenant. Now, what I mean by this is that circumcision is a symbol of the covenant it signifies. 
Hold on. Hold on with me. The sign itself has symbolic value. Meaning, meaning, meaning. We don't just choose some random physical externality and say, this is just going to kind of remind us of this covenant. Like, kind of like you would, like if you're trying to remember something, you would tie a string around your finger. It doesn't mean anything in itself, but it reminds you of something that means something, right? The signs that God chooses, it seems, for for these covenants actually symbolize, illustrate what the covenant itself stands for, means. So there's actually illustrative uh, uh, power in the sign itself. There's symbolic value to it. Again, Lord's table will help you understand it in case this seems a little bit uh, opaque at this point. The, the, the bread and the wine. What is it, just random? Just when you kind of have a meal, you you know, this, we, we are now kind of uh, uh, investing this with, with, with some sort of meaning. No, he, he actually chooses it because it pictures what the covenant is and how it was established, right? When that bread is broken, I mean, you get a picture of his body broken. When that, when that wine is poured out, you get a picture uh, uh, of the one whose blood was poured out as he was trampled under the wine press of God's wrath on the cross. So, so there's symbolic value to these signs. It illustrates what the covenant actually uh, 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 stipulates. Does that make sense? So you can kind of say, whoa, okay, Jesus died for me. That's how the new covenant got established. These signs aren't just random like a string around a finger. They're actually kind of visual reminders, visual uh, 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 explanations of the covenant itself. So how does circumcision then um, start to illustrate the covenant that God made with Abraham. For this, we need to go to Genesis 17. And if you can see, I would recommend you go there. Genesis 17. This is where God initiates this covenant. I want to spend a, a moment reading this. Genesis 17, verse 1. We're going to read down to verse 12. So you're in luck. It's the first book in your, in your Old Testament. All you got to do is get through the table of contents and you're there. Chapter 17. God started dealing with Abraham, Genesis 12. After the fall of Adam, Genesis 3. He's doing work with a new people here. Genesis 17 is where he starts to actually kind of ratify or or, uh, solidify the promises he's been making in covenant form. Genesis 17, verse 1. Here we go. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful 
And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Verse 9, here comes circumcision. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Eight days old shall be circumcised. This is what we see happening with John in our text. This is where that covenant was established. This is why Israel would do it in the first place. And we are trying to answer um, how the circumcision act symbolizes what the the covenant actually stood for. So before we can even know what it's symbolizing, we have to know what the covenant even was. And here's what I want you to notice. This was my reason for reading all of this to you. I want you to see the striking overlap between God's purpose here with Abraham and his commission of Adam just a few chapters earlier, Genesis 1 and 2. We don't realize this, but God did not just scrap things with Adam and and, and just start something completely fresh. He's going about what he was after with Adam in a new way. Now he's, we will see, doing it by grace with the people of Abraham. I want you to see the overlap here. God is going to multiply Abraham greatly. Just like Adam was to bear fruit and multiply and fill the land, right? God's going to multiply him greatly, verse 2b. God's going to make him exceedingly fruitful, verse 6a. God's going to give him a, a, a nation in a holy land, verse 8. Kind of this Edenic idea now that's, that's being transferred to Canaan. And yet God is going to also cause his people to infiltrate and fill the nations. Okay? And that is why He gives him this new name, Abraham, father of a multitude, verse 5. So this stuff that God was going to do with Adam, that Adam failed, he is now starting to to, to look to Abraham and he's going to do it. That's the major distinction. Whereas with Adam it was man is going to do this for God. We're going to fill the earth with image bears. Now what we have is God is going to do this for man. I will make you. I will do it. Because we are now in a fallen context. We have proven ourselves unable. God says, I'm coming in. I'm going to make this thing happen. Make you fruitful. Multiply you. Fill the earth. We're going to touch every nation with this covenant people. My grace. Now, this is why... He takes the people that are dead, physically. I'm going I'm to fill the earth with people that are dead. Romans 4, 19, Abraham considered his body as good as dead. <laughs> 99 years old, 100 years old, whatever. Dead. Looked at his wife, womb as barren as the desert. 
God said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this in a fallen, barren landscape. We're going to start watching fruit coming up. Circumcision. How does it symbolize that? Isn't that amazing when you think about it? Stay with me. Yeah, I know we're starting, to, we're starting to, 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 to tread into rated R here, but <laughs> be mature. Circumcision, it's an incredible picture. Adam was to reproduce and fill the earth with image bearers, right? But he fell, he failed. And so what do we have in circumcision but a cutting away of the flesh on the male reproductive organ, mind you. A cutting away of the flesh, symbolizing a cutting away of the fallen nature, a cutting away of the dead kind of stuff, and a, and a, and a new principle of life is emerging and fruitfulness emerging so that that initial, that initial commission is starting now to be fulfilled by God, by His grace, this new covenant people. You're seeing now how it's not just some random thing. It's symbolizing what the covenant, uh, what it signifies. This covenant where God is going to make these people fruitful and fill the nations with, 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 with His image again. Now renewed by grace. Now, level three. The spirit of the covenant. Circumcision also, also stands for the spirit of of the covenant. Here's what I mean by this. We move another level deeper, and, and this is what we see. In all the physical and earthy elements of the Old Covenant, Old Testament, God is always aiming, always aiming at something more substantial, something spiritual, something deeper than just a tabernacle, deeper than just an animal and its blood, deeper than just circumcision of the flesh. What he wants more than anything is what we will find, circumcision of the heart. This is what you see in Deuteronomy 10, 16. Circumcise, he says, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. You see, what, what, uh, this, this, this circumcision symbolized, the cutting off of flesh and the emerging of a new life and fruit principle, is saying that we need to take it even deeper than just the skin. I want that to be at the heart level. I want your old, fallen nature, your hard hearts done away with, cut off, put to death, and new life emerging. There. So you got the sign, you got the symbol, and that's driving us down into this, 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 not the letter of the law, but the spirit of it. I want not your skin, but your heart. Some of us might need to hear that, right? Why are you in church today? Is it just kind of you're giving God your skin? Right? I'm just here because this is what we do, or does He have your heart? It wasn't in my notes, that was free. This call, this command of God, that Israel uh, would give him, would circumcise their hearts, be no longer stubborn, they would prove helpless to obey this through the years. You just read the Old Testament. It's what it is. 
You just see it over and over. There's this fault line running underneath the Old Testament where they build up and maybe do a little repentance and faith and then it's idolatry and the whole thing comes down again and the, the, the fault line's just tremoring. This fallen heart of man. We can't do this. We can't get there. We can do the skin. We can't give you our full hearts, God. And He knows this. In fact, that's one of the reasons why he, 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 he takes us here. I wonder if you know that a lot of what the Old Testament law and all this stuff is, it's just kind of like a, it's a campaign to raise awareness. <laughs> Raising awareness. You can't do it. You need my mercy. <laughs> we take it and we go the opposite with it because that's how sinful we are. I did it. I'm circumcised. I did it. I, I, I sacrificed my animal. He said, I don't want your sacrifices. They're gross to me if I don't have your heart. I don't care about circumcision if your heart isn't circumcised. This is why we see God 400 years later bringing in the law. After circumcision, 400 years later we're told God brings in the law. You want to know what, he's, what Paul tells us the law comes in to do? Increase the trespass. Is that crazy? I came in to make things worse. I came in to raise awareness so that as you see, I can't do this. I can't keep the law. You start to, you start to come to Him for mercy. Or we read in Romans 3.19 that the law came in so that every mouth, now we get kind of to this picture with Zechariah, every mouth may be stopped, silenced. And the whole world held accountable to God. The law comes in so that we all are just down here with Zechariah, quiet and waiting for the mercy of God to come. The only one who can come in and circumcise this hard heart. This is the great expectation of the entire Old Testament. It's what... Moses leaves us with in in Deuteronomy 30 as he's bowing out. You might want to turn here. Deuteronomy 30, verses 5 and 6. You should read this. It's amazing. I mean, this is the end of him. He's about to bow out. He's passing the torch on to Joshua. Israel's about to go into Canaan and conquest the promised land. He's got some last things to say to them, and that's what's recorded largely in Deuteronomy. We come to the end of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 30. And you want to know what he's saying? And I'll read verses, verses, uh, what did I say? Five and six in a moment. I'll sum up the stuff before. He basically says, guys, Israelites, there's going to be a time of blessing coming for you when you're obedient. A little while in the land. It's great. But there's going to come a time of curses as well when you give yourself to idolatry, when you fall away from the living God. And ultimately where you will end, I'm sorry to say, is scattered to the wind, exiled to the nations. That's where this thing is going. And Moses calls it from the beginning. It's amazing. You want to know how he knows? Because of the stubbornness of your hearts. It's not going to change until God changes. And that's where it comes. Okay, there's blessing. There's curse. You're going to end up in exile. But, verse 5. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed. 
that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will now love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. You may live. Blessing, curse, exile, but there is something coming beyond all of that. There is a time when God will finally wield the knife, wield the knife Himself and circumcise your hearts that you would fulfill what Jesus says, the greatest law. He sums it all up. You would, you would love Him with all your heart, mind, and soul. Law is no longer going to be on stone carved into your skin. It's going to be written into your heart. Ezekiel tells us, Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit in you. I'm coming in. I'm going to write it there. Forget the stone. Forget the skin. We're going in. Now, this leads us back to our text, right? And I think it brings with it a whole new world. I hope it brings with it a whole new world of meaning. Because it's the hardness of Zechariah's heart, the stubbornness of his unbelief that finally leaves him silenced before God. Mouth shut, tongue tied. And he's representing, in essence, Israel in exile at this point, and all of humanity in exile, waiting, waiting for the time of the arrival of the mercy of God. When is that time beyond the blessing and the curse? God waits for the day of John's circumcision to circumcise Zechariah's heart. Whereby his spirit would fill Zechariah, we're told. His mouth would be opened. His tongue loosed. And you want to know what we can discern from that song that he starts singing there in the verses that follow our text? He's loving the Lord his God with all his heart and all his soul. The stubbornness, the hardness, the foreskin of his heart removed. And something new is coming into play here. The words declared by Moses in Deuteronomy 30, the circumcision of the heart is being initiated in these events, only not so much through John, but through the one John is going before, right? Jesus. This brings us then to the fourth level of circumcision and its meaning. You got level one, it's the sign of this covenant. Level two, it's a symbol of this covenant. Level level three is the spirit of the covenant that's signified here. And then level four, circumcision also points is, is a shadow. It's a shadow of the covenant. Meaning it is a shadow of the coming one who alone could fulfill all the that the Abrahamic covenant entailed. Okay? It's 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 something that is pointing us forward to the ultimate substance, the one who could finally fulfill this Abrahamic idea, the circumcision of the heart, all these things coming together in Christ. When when God has Abraham and all of his offspring circumcise their reproductive organs. I, again, I'm sorry. 
He is basically drawing their attention to the seed, the line of the one whereby the line whereby that that one promised to Eve, Genesis three fifteen, who would undo the the work of the serpent, overturn the curse. And now we know who will circumcise the hearts, people from the inside out. He's drawing their attention to that holy line. <laughs> It's coming, narrows in Abraham now from, from Eve, Abraham now, and they're looking and they're saying, okay, this one is coming. This one is coming. The one to whom all the circumcision stuff pointed. That's why we read in Colossians 2, 11 through 14, what we do. In Him, namely in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. Hear this? This It's awesome. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. Christ, Christ would in Himself fulfill all that circumcision stood for. The sign, the symbol, the spirit, the shadow, it's all coming into Him. We're on that cross. I mean, what do you have? The crucifixion is a cutting away of the dead thing. He is treated as the fallen flesh, treated as the sinful nature, cut off. But yet, at the same time, in His resurrection, a new principle of fruitfulness and life emerges. Power over the grave. Power over the barrenness of human nature fallen in Adam. And we are given this in Him when He sends His Spirit down. I mean, Zechariah is just a picture of what's coming in in Pentecost. When He sends His Spirit down and tongues just praising God, hearts are circumcised. We get His death. We die with Him. Right? The old man, the, the, the guy who just wants to talk and talk and talk, put to death. And a new principle of life. Resurrection, power, life by His Spirit now in me. The circumcision of Christ is ours in Him. That's why to get back to my original question (laughs) I think God has Zechariah wait in silence for eight more days this stuff about circumcision (laughs) that circumcision of the heart that everyone was waiting for is being inaugurated in the coming of, of God's son it's upon us now we're beyond the blessing and the curse and the exile the time of heart circumcision is here all right, let's keep going. Number three. And don't worry, that was by far the longest one, so. 
I will not keep you much longer. But this is important. Verses 59, the second part of, of verse 59 to 63. I want to keep following the narrative. We come to this idea of the perfect name. As we come uh, now to these verses, what we see is that Zechariah has an important decision to make regarding the name of his son. All right? And, 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 and what we're, what we're gonna see is whether or not he has been trained by this time of silence, whether he's been sufficiently humbled and is ready to receive God's grace. Ready to say, okay, I, I can't do, I just receive what you say. I've been silenced. My mouth is shut. I'm ready for you to talk. If you say this is what's gonna happen, what's gonna happen? Is he gonna agree with God here and name his son John or not? Is he going to keep talking over God? So here's what we find. There's a group around him, right? Neighbors and relatives. And they're all excited like you would expect. I mean, God's doing miraculous things in their midst and they're all talking about it and and pumped up for him. And they follow with them to where they're going to circumcise this child. And they all have this idea about what the name of this child should be. It seems that on the day of circumcision, at this time at least in Israel's history, it was a common thing to name the child on the day of his circumcision. And so they all have ideas of what this name should be for this child, right? And where are they going? They're going to tradition. They're going to, hey, he should be called Zechariah. Doesn't that have a nice ring to it, Zechariah? Let's call him after your name. Or at least, at least let's give him the name of some of your relatives in your family line. Let's, let's keep that sort of honor and keep that sort of tradition going. But Mary will not have it. Verse 60, right? No, no. He shall be called John. He shall be called John. I've drawn attention to the meaning of John's name before. I'll just bring it back up again here today. John, in the Hebrew, Yahweh is gracious. His name is going to be Yahweh is gracious. The essential meaning, we've kind of looked at a little bit before, this idea that, hey, listen, the law, the ceremonies, the traditions, all these things could never change man at the heart level. Only God's grace gets there. His name will be Yahweh is gracious. Now, what will the Father say? The crowds are not stoked on Mary's answer. Ah, come on. Okay, sure. Mary wants to name him John. That's fine. But we all know what, what Zechariah is going to say, right? He's not going to turn down the opportunity to have his son named after him. Let's see what Zechariah has to say about this. And here's the decision that Zechariah has to make. Here it is. Has he been humbled? Has he been trained? Is he ready to say, not my will, your will. Not what I say, what you say. Not my name, your name. It's awesome. He asked, this is verse 63. He asked for a writing tablet. And he starts writing. His name is John. Probably don't catch the subtle shift in tense here. But it's powerful to me. Mary, his name shall be called, or it's actually future tense in the Greek, so will be called John. That's what we're going to name him. He will be called John. Zechariah, 
takes that future tense and drives it like a stake in the ground at this point. By using the present tense. His name is John. What God has said about my son will stand. It's not for us to decide. God already named him. (laughs) His name has been John. His name is John. You see... This is where, I mean, I don't think John or Zechariah could have given a greater affirmation at this point. I'm going with what God has to say about my boy. Receives this grace. He gets down off the throne. Puts God up on it. Now, a note I want to make here um, regarding this, this scene that we just witnessed is receiving God's grace the filling of His Spirit, the circumcision of heart, is at once both an exit and an entrance. Did you catch this? Naming His, 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 his Son, not after Himself, but, after, but according to what God would have Him call Him, had to be a sort of death blow to the flesh, right? He's looking at the this is my boy. I want to call him by my name. I said, no. I'll let my name go. We've been looking at that a lot with the characters in these, these narratives. Let my name go. And beyond that, you get this, you get this sense that, 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 that there's, there's a break even with tradition. Even with family, there's an exit of something. i got to let some of that stuff go. Everyone say, this isn't customary. What about your family? What about, what about our traditions? You say, i got to go with grace on this. i got to go with God on this. It's an exit of some of this stuff. It's not my story, my family anymore. It's His family. It's His story. I want into God's story. I want to adopt it into Him. I'm going to go with God here. But to get there, to enter into that sort of grace, there is an exit. And some of you have felt that, right? In your own stories. You might even be here today, not a believer. You haven't yet cried out to Christ, been silenced under the law. I need you. I need you to change my heart. Here's the fact of the matter. In order to get there, you also know that while, while there may be some in this room that would celebrate, well, all of us in this room would celebrate that decision, there will be others in your life who, who will bid you adieu. Get out of here. You're going to talk, talk about, you're going to be one of those Jesus freaks. You're not my kid anymore. There's an exit. Sometimes you've got to leave stuff behind. There's a death. There's a cutting off of the flesh to move forward into that new resurrection life. To be born again in Christ, often we have to die. Always. (laughs) We have to die with Him. Now, I'm going to close with this fourth heading here. Verses 64 to 66. We're really just going to look at verse 64 see this new song, but let me read verse 64. We, we're drawing to a close, but we come to the climax of the story. We read this. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. 
and he spoke, blessing God. That tablet scribble, his name is John, was saying, God, God is the one. I need him. He has learned. He has been humbled. And you want to know what happens when a heart reaches that place? God is on him immediately. I love, I love that detail that Luke records there because he uses that word immediately all over his gospel. And so often what he uses it for is when when these needy sinners, these broken people come up to Jesus and Jesus just touches them or just says a word and, and Luke records immediately healed. Immediately things changed. <laughs> we get that here with Zechariah. If I could give you one of those illustrations, you remember, most of us know the woman with that discharge of blood, right? Who just wants to touch the fringe of Jesus' garment. She's pressing in through the crowd. I know if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. Right there. She touches the fringe of his garment, and we are told, Luke 8, 44, I want to say. Yes, Luke 8, 44. The blood stopped immediately. What this highlights for us is the accessibility of, of, of God's grace and power right now in this room. I mean, it says He is here in this room. He doesn't kind of hide behind the curtain and wait till we get really loud. He's just looking in to our heart, saying, when that heart says, I need your grace, Yahweh is gracious, you, I need you. We reach out to touch Him. He is on us like that with His grace. I mean, if any would come to me, I will in no way cast them out, right? John 6. He's not standing here with His arms crossed. He's got arms open. Come. Come. Finally, verse 64, what we see when we read it in light of what follows is that this, this, this mouth being opened, this, this tongue being loosed, and Him blessing God, it's kind of filled out for us as we, as we, as we look beyond. We see that it's happening because He's filled with the Spirit Verse 67, the Holy Spirit fills him. And then we see that what he's actually doing in those moments is singing this song recorded for us in verses 68 and 79. So here's what amazes me. When God, when God takes us through trial, puts us under discipline, whatever it is, you want to know where he wants to take us? Not just back to where we were. He doesn't just give Zechariah his voice back. Okay, you can have it. He elevates him. Not just talking again, but singing, you see. This is where God wants to take us. When he strikes us silent, it is not, it is not like that abusive parent who just is tired of hearing his kid talk. Go to your room. It's not it. He ties our tongues so He can retune our hearts and teach us to sing 
his praise. He gets us down so he can lift us up. That's all I got for us. Let's pray. Jesus, we have to ask ourselves at this point if we're talking or if we're singing. God, I want my heart retuned. I want to come under under the, the, the law in silence so that I can be lifted up in Your grace with song. God, I pray for people in this room that are wrestling with what I even just said. Do they even believe it? Are You actually accessible immediately to them right here? God, I pray You would do a great work. I pray You would cause people to be born again even in this room from above. It's something that you do from above. It's a circumcision, not with our hands, but with your hands. God, would you operate on our hearts this morning? Would you put us to death with Christ? And would you raise us in a new life? Would you let us sing from our hearts for your glory now? God, there is so much power in your name. Those who call on your name will be saved. I just give you thanks for my own Zechariah story. You literally silenced me. (laughs) To bring me to yourself. And teach me to sing. God, I pray that for those of us in this room that don't yet know you, if there are any, would you show them the power that's accessible to them immediately in your name? It's not just a name, it's a person. It's not just a person, it's your work. And you have died for our sins, circumcision of our heart, cutting off of the old, and risen to bring us into new life. We might love you from all our heart, with all our soul, all our strength. Thank you for the work you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.